Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with Social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with Social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Ingo Mueller, CEO of AgriForce Growing Systems Limited. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is AGRI on NASDAQ. AgriForce Growing Systems is an ag tech company focused on the development and acquisition of crop production, know-how, and intellectual property augmented by advanced ag tech facilities and solutions. Looking to serve the global market, the company's current focus is on North and Central America, Europe, and Asia. The AgriForce vision is to be a leader in delivering plant-based foods and products through advanced and sustainable ag tech solution platforms that make positive change in the world from seed to table. Agriculture technology or ag tech sector has garnered a lot of attention in recent years due to growing demand to feed a growing global population with entrepreneurs around the globe working tirelessly for solutions to this problem. AgriForce is right there in the fight, and we dive into AgriForce's technology solutions and brands, grow house facilities opportunity, the company's business strategy, and where CEO Ingo Mueller would like to see the company in three to five years. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Ingo Mueller, CEO of AgriForce Growing Systems Limited. Ingo, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bob. How are you? Not too bad. You know, just uh, looking forward to learning a little bit more about AgriForce. So uh, as is tradition on this on this show here on the series, can you start us off with that one line that best describes AgriForce? Well, we like to say our purpose is to positively transform farm food and family every day, everywhere. All right. Well, let's dig in as to uh, how you're looking to accomplish that. So let, let's get a little history. When did the company start and how did you evolve to where you're currently at today? Well, the company um, originated in 2017. However, a prelude to that was two entrepreneurs who really understood the challenges that, that humanity is facing with respect to food. 
Um, and we're thinking about better, smarter ways to bring food closer to people in particular urban centers. So they had about an eight year journey developing um, a concept of how to achieve that and how to do it in a way that utilize less resources, um, but also improve the quality of, of what was being grown. And so they came to me in uh, 2017, effectively asking if I could assist them in um, developing the business and, and raising them some capital. And, uh, and that was really the start of it. Um, and it focused around a concept they called the grow house, uh, or we call it the grow house, they called it something else, but nonetheless, um, it, it started there. And, and what happened was, uh, although the concept was interesting, we realized that it needed a tremendous amount of work to actually develop it into a, a commercial uh, uh, or commercially usable technology. So we spent the better part of a couple of years uh, designing or redesigning and developing engineering um, and, and really being in a position where we could deliver on something that was really truly unique, sort of the next generation of controlled environment agriculture. But during that time, we, we saw a much broader opportunity in the market where we thought about all the things that were really driving um, the development of, of agriculture and the things that needed to be addressed to really find ways to deliver more sustainably produced and better for you, as we like to say, or more nutritious food. And that evolved into really a, a vision to become a world leader in delivering next generation food and plant products using advanced ag tech solutions. So everything we focus on is actually around intellectual property, because at the end of the day, food is still a commodity um, or agriculture generally is a commoditized business. And in my experience running commodity-based businesses in the past, you know, the way that you outcompete, the way that you deliver uh, more robust financial returns is really to focus on things that are unique to you, that provide you a built-in hedge to macroeconomic issues or conditions and really allow you to stand out in, in what ultimately is a crowded space. And, and so, there isn't anything we do that doesn't touch on unique know-how or intellectual property. Very good. All right. Well, thank thank you for for that full overview there. Um, now, I want to I want to understand the grow house a little bit better. You know, this what, the original concept and maybe how that's evolved to to. I'm sure it's changed even since then. You know, once you get into the nitty gritty and you know you start talking with engineers and whatnot. So, can you describe us the grow house and where it's at in its uh, development today? Yeah, so the grow house, um, like I said, is an advanced form of controlled environment agriculture. It's really based upon growing high value crops uh, to EU GMP standards, so pharma grade standards. So anything that needs really exact environmental control is ideally suited to be grown in this type of facility. Um, obviously, we don't have any visuals, so I can't really uh, show you. But what I can speak to is a couple of things that are unique about it. Um, first and foremost, although it looks similar to a greenhouse, 
Um, it is very, very different, um, both in shape and, and more importantly in materials and functionality. So um, it is what they call a tensile structure, which means it's used uh, or built using cables uh, instead of steel structures within the actual uh, physical facility itself. Um, that may sound like not a big deal, but it actually is because when you eliminate those uh, posts and beams within the facility uh, footprint, you uh, gain about 30% more usable or yieldable area. And that, of course, is extremely important when you're thinking about the efficiency of a building. It also allows uh, or allowed us to create a design that was actually a building within a building. And the significance of that is really about air management um, and climate management, because you create an air cavity, in this case, in our case, it's 30 inches, in which you can inject a water-soluble foam. And for every inch of foam that you inject into that cavity, you end up getting an R1 insulation value. So notionally, you can get up to an R30 insulation value. And put that in context, your average well-insulated home is about an R22. So you've got an agricultural building that provides better insulation value than your average home. And that allows us to deploy grow houses in extreme environments and, and to actually really efficiently manage the climate. Because once you've created the ideal climate conditions, you can maintain that with very little energy. So that's you know an example of, of uh, some of the, the technology. Um, I'll mention one other thing because otherwise I'll be talking for a very long time. The facility itself is 21 elements of inventiveness in our patents. You may have seen we announced some patents related to this. Um, and one of them is we use material which is not glass and it's not plastic. And what makes this material is completely translucent or transparent. Um, what makes it so unique is not only does it allow about 98% of the light spectrum through it, the light spectrum from the sun, it also allows substantially all of the UV light. And UV light is critically important to plant health. It's the thing that drives color, flavor, potency. When you compare the material we use to say glass, glass is, is uh, much lower uh, light spectrum penetration. Uh, it's around 80% um, at best, 70 to 80. Um, and then when you think about um, UV light, it lets in very little, if any of the useful UV light. So those are a couple of the elements that, uh, you know, this grow house um, has, it has many, many more. Um, you may also be aware, uh, Bob, that we, we signed a contract to deploy our first facility in Barbados, but since then we also announced a land acquisition in California, where we expect to build several of the units. Um, and uh, so we're, we're really excited about deploying this technology and really demonstrating to the world that we can do something that's unique to us that offers uh, tremendous advantages from an operating perspective um, and sustainability perspective.
Very good. So those those announcements that you're talking about with the land in California and then also in Barbados, are those are, are those considered pilot programs or are they is this the first commercialization of the greenhouse? I think it will be to... commercialization. Got it. When okay. You, um, people always ask me, well, how do you know it's going to work? Um, and and I've had the the opportunity to build. Well, actually, not even to cut you off, like what does work, what is it's going to work mean? Well, that's the point. Uh, I think right. a lot of right. people look at it as a black and white proposition. It either works or it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, having built industrial facilities as a CEO before um, that actually incorporated new technology, I can tell you, and this would apply not only to, you know, industrial facilities, but it applies to mining projects and, and different other industry. Um, you go through a, a rigorous process of design and engineering. And by the time that you finish your complete engineered design, not only do you have um, your costs, construction costs defined plus or minus 10, you know, outside 20%, you also understand all your operating uh, outcomes within the same range. Um, and so it's not about not working, it's about working to a degree of design efficiency. So you know it's gonna work, you know you're gonna get what you've designed it to do, but you're going to have a slight variability on either side, a little bit better or a little bit worse. But by and large, you're going to know it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do. And a good example of that is the Burj um, in Dubai. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's just a taller skyscraper, you know, no big deal. Well, before they built that, nobody had ever built a skyscraper that high. And when you go to that height, you create all sorts of new engineering paradigms that nobody had ever really engineered before. So it was far from certain, so to speak. Um, but again, you can go through your modeling, your testing, um, your redundancies to ensure that when it's built, it's going to stay standing no matter what happens uh, in terms of wind or climate conditions. So it's the same sort of concept and idea. Absolutely. So and going again, speaking to the deals in California and Barbados, are these examples of the company's target customer base? You know, are you looking to sell to municipalities? Because you mentioned in the investor deck that you have B2B solutions, B2C. You know, is this more of that institutional type solution? And then it, what, what, how does, how does the customer part come in in terms of the business model? Yeah, so we've designed this facility for use, like I said, for high value crops. So you could use it for cannabis. You could use it for pharmaceuticals. You could use it for psychedelics. You could use it for certain food crops. Um, so the idea is not for us to operate the facilities, but simply to license the facilities to users, uh, farmers, whether the farmer could be uh, a cannabis company, it could be a pharma company, it could be a food company. Um, and, and that's how we, we earn our money. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance, or ESG reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress to create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. 
Social Suite's software platform makes ESG reporting fast, simple, and affordable. Companies can start building a baseline report in under 60 minutes and start reporting publicly within 30 days. Start your ESG journey today. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. Got it. So it's, I mean, you don't even go in and build it. It's pure licensing play, basically. No, well, we build it. Oh, you do build, build okay. it. Yeah, we build it. We train the the users on how to use it, to optimize it. But they're ultimately, they take over operations or are responsible for operating the business and growing whatever it is that they want to grow in. Absolutely. So what would you say has been the main value proposition when, you know, it, it, even just looking at these first two examples, what's been the main value proposition that they saw in saying, all right, I'm going to go with the grow house versus maybe the traditional greenhouse situation? Yeah, there's there's really, I think, one key driver, which is being able to control your environment to ultimately optimize your yield and your quality of production of whatever it is you're producing. So, you know, anything, there's a cost benefit, of course. Um, And so, you know, you've got to look at your economics. You've got to look at, you know, how it compares to existing technology. And uh, when you think about California, certain parts of California, where you have, you know, in our case, Coachella, um, you know, it's very hot. Um, for many months of the year, very difficult to to operate, say, a traditional greenhouse in that environment. Um, uh, you look at Barbados, uh, horrible soil conditions, same sort of climatic variability that also makes it really difficult to grow things. Um, so in that case, um, both the users, well, in one case, the, the user is for cannabis in, in Barbados, in um in Coachella, we're looking at a couple of different uses, one of which is co- is um, cannabis, but the other is also on the pharma side. So, you know, in each and every one of those uses, obviously, those are the variables that are going to impact what they can produce and how they can then take that product and compete in the market. So why, why talk, take me to the to the strategy room where you guys talked about saying, hey, we want to build these, you know, not necessarily for, you know, cucumbers and tomatoes and lettuce, but more for these high value crops these, so that we they can get to the farmer grade standards? Well, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, uh, economics at the end of the day. It, this is not uh, as inexpensive as a greenhouse. This costs more to build. However, uh, the benefits of, of investing more is that you get better yield and you get better quality of crop. So when you take uh, crops that are highly regulated or where the application or use of those crops drive higher value, then um, it makes sense to want to focus on crop quality and the economics around that crop quality. And so, you know, I'll use cannabis because it's an easy one. When you grow cannabis indoors or in greenhouses, it's actually really difficult to grow and difficult to grow in the context of producing a high quality product with high yields that um, meets the regulatory requirements with respect to bacteria, viruses, so on and so forth. And so 
There, that market, for example, is, is really in need of a solution that can deliver on those things. So, you know, take, for example, plant-based vaccines. Um, you grow a plant in a less than optimally controlled environment, i.e. a greenhouse, it becomes very hard to meet those EU GMP standards. Um, you can meet them, but your cost of get, meeting them becomes much higher than what we could offer in terms of operating costs to the users. So, so those are just a couple of uh, examples. No, it makes total sense. I mean, I, you know, I did an interview um, with Aaron Idleheit, for, uh, who's a well-known cannabis investor, and you know, we're talking. We were talking about the cannabis industry and how uh, it's interesting times, to say the least. Um, and but the main thing that we discussed that I, even for me, I was like, really, there's an issue with this is crop yields and how there's just bad harvests and that there hasn't been really any set controls in place because these companies are just losing money hand over fist because they just aren't generating the quality, the consistent and quality of crop that they need, you know? So is that where AgriForce is like, yes, this is where we come in? Exactly. Because existing solutions aren't adequate enough. It, 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 it just doesn't work uh, or doesn't work well. Um, sure, you can produce a crop that, you know, uh, fails miserably from a quality perspective and you can irradiate it um, and sell it, but that doesn't create value because consumers don't like it. Um, and, and so how do you find a way to deliver what consumers want, yet still make money? And, and that's what we believe our solution does offer, not just for cannabis, but for any, any other crop that's used in high value applications, because typically those crops are high value because they're difficult to grow. <laughs> And certainly very difficult, difficult to grow in controlled environments. And so some of these crops that have grown outdoors, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to do with climate change, water scarcity, you know, pollution. All these things are impacting society's ability to deliver, um, you know, a quality product that meets the standards consumers are looking for or regulators are requiring. Absolutely. So I want to, in order to do what you're, what you're doing and building out the, 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 the grow house and saying that you can grow these crops at farmer grade level, did that require any sort of, um, I don't know, licenses or something that you had to get from the FDA or something like that, that says, yes, these houses when built are approved and will produce these types of things. You, you, you see where I'm going with that? No, not directly. Um, when you look at European Union Good Manufacturing Practices, the EU GMP, it's really a series of protocols that you have to follow that then allow you, once you're doing it, to certify yourself on that basis. So, you know, in terms of cleanliness and protocols, we meet those standards. Of course, we only get that certification once we've built it and we're operating it. Okay. Um, what, what we can uh, say is the building is a positive pressure building. For uh, example, I didn't mention that before. So it, it blows things out. Um, it's completely sealed. So we don't let stuff in. And, and that's, a, you know, that again, may not sound like anything, but in a greenhouse, if you close all the venting in a greenhouse, 
you're in trouble. Your, your climate becomes very difficult to manage. We found a way to do that. Um, this importance of a sealed facility is it's really hard to get external factors to come in. Of course, human contamination can still occur. But again, we have methods to uh, effectively eliminate that risk uh, as well. You can never, you know, it's never 100%, but, you know, you can certainly get it to the point where it's as close to 100% as possible. So um, it's doing those sorts of things which other facilities can't compete with. And so when you think about a greenhouse, you've got the vents, they're open, and, you know, things can come in. I mean, you've got airborne contamination that travels, uh, you know, pesticides travel many, many kilometers from source. Um, so there's this whole misnomer about organic. Well, you know, no matter how hard a farmer tries, it's really hard to, to be truly organic because no matter what, most vegetables, fruits, et cetera, they're grown in, in very particular areas. Um, so, you know, you've got these big valleys um, in which these are grown and you've got, let's call it non-organic crops being grown uh, beside organic crops. And guess what? <laughs> Those organic crops are gonna get contaminated. They may be following all the protocols around not using pesticides, et cetera, but they're still affected by what goes on around them. And the same applies for greenhouses, you know. So, um, so it's thinking about all those impacts and figuring out ways to mitigate or eliminate. Absolutely, yeah. The reason I really wanted to ask is because I'm trying to, I want to continue to put the puzzle pieces together about the company's moat, you know, and where you're at in terms of the competitive landscape. You know what, and really, what does that look like? Or are there other companies that are developing similar types of, you know, greenhouse 2.0 type projects? Or are you guys kind of leading the charge? And does that also speak to maybe some of the, your patent portfolio that you have uh, within well, the company? Well, first and foremost, you know, our our business is much broader than the grow house. Um, you know, when we want to take your listeners to through the deck and we talk about some elements of our business in more detail, I can um, sort of focus in on that. But but holistically, um, you know, we, we cover many more areas. We like to say seed the table. And I'll explain how we do that. And the grow house, of course, is an important part of that as well. On our facility side, um, we believe we're the only ones who have come up with, well, it's actually borne out by our patent, <laughs> um, that have designed something like this. Um, greenhouse producers, predominantly out of the Netherlands, that's where you know the large part of the greenhouse technology has come from and continues to innovate or evolve. Um, is really focused on the standard form of Dutch greenhouse. And they have different types of Dutch greenhouse, including what they call high-tech greenhouses. They still um, are designed, manufactured using glass, uh, still the same structural elements. So they still have the shortcomings that, that we set out to resolve. Um, that doesn't mean they're bad, far from it. Um, for low-value crops, works perfectly. Um, you know, a lot of those crops have evolved genetically um, to uh, be more um, resilient, so to speak, um, towards, you know, pest infestation, you know, other climatic conditions, but certainly not perfect. There's a tremendous amount of 
crop loss still within greenhouses. But, uh, you know, we focused on, okay, high value crops. What does the market need? And, and where is there a gap? And how do we go after that gap? And that's what the grow house really represents. It's sort of that next level. Up. As we'd like to say, it's like the Rolls Royce um, of, of greenhouse technology. Gotcha. So, I mean, take us through a little bit. You know, we've talked about the grow house a little bit, where you're at in, in terms of its commercialization, kind of describe the technology and whatnot. You know, take us through so, what else makes up AgriForce as well. Well, we like to, well, there's two sides of our business, first and foremost, um, what we call AgriForce Solutions and what we call AgriForce Brands. We call it the two-legged stool. On one side, AgriForce Solutions, it's all about growing crops. How do you grow the best crops that produce the most nutritious outcomes and do that in the most sustainable way possible? Whereas brands is taking those produced crops and either delivering those outcomes to consumers directly, or it's taking those crops and converting them into foods, other foods um, that deliver on that sustainability and nutrition promise. So our business, we see it as fully integrated across those two spectrums, those two legs of the stool. Um, so, when we think about solutions, it's really about, okay, what is the best way for us to deliver on our promise of sustainably produced crops, uh, better for you crops? And it all starts with consulting. Um, we're in the process of acquiring and completing the acquisition of, of Delphi. Um, Delphi, uh, you may have seen, um, is considered probably the, the world's foremost agricultural uh, consultancy has over 250 consultants um, and 12 offices globally. Um, so this this is a business that was actually created over 100 years ago by the Dutch government, only became private about 30 years ago. So there's a tremendous amount of know-how uh, or knowledge uh, that's you know been captured and evolved across all crop spectrums um, around the world. And, and that knowledge, we believe, is just so important in terms of figuring out and distilling lessons learned and applying it to new environments and conditions and evolving new technology and better practices. So, um, so that's the knowledge base. And then we take that and we transform that into also CEA applications, which is what we call the facility side of our business. So that's where the grow house slots in. And within any CEA solution is a, a number of very important factors or what we call pillars, four pillars that we believe are essential to producing uh, or, or delivering on that sustainability nutrition promise. And so we are starting to target companies that fit into those four pillars. For example, we announced the acquisition of a company called Darus that's involved in uh, tissue culture and plant genetics. Um, to us, that is where it all starts. And, and that's still an acquisition in process, but that's a good example of porting. So we're taking knowledge, we're applying it to the actual plant itself and then now we're targeting other businesses that fit into our four pillars around our, 
our facility solutions side. And we look to create what we call sort of an ag tech or integrated ag tech 2.0 model. It's really think about I, IBM um, consulting services and think about how IBM moved from a hardware provider to a knowledge provider and use that knowledge to drive the implementation of its hardware and software. And, it, and it's really the same sort of model or think of it like in Accenture, right? So we're really trying to use that knowledge to drive the results that we're looking for. And then within the solution side, we also um, acquired a technology called RCS, um, which you may uh, also have seen an announcement around. And that's, you know, fits within the pillars where we're trying to deal with ideal environments. And as we talked about before, contamination is a huge problem, not just in field agriculture and controlled environment agriculture, but also in food technology. You know, we lose so much food to contamination, uh, both in the harvesting area, but also in the processing area. Um, and so this is a technology that we believe, uh, or we believe can, can make a huge impact in reducing that contamination. It kills 99.9% .9 of all uh, bacteria and viruses known to man, including COVID, um, and it's it's really essential to to um, addressing some of the challenges that we we face as a as a society. So that that's on the solution side. On the brand side, imagine coming up uh, or or us having intellectual property IP that actually can take some of these staples of of agriculture like wheat and convert them into better for you wheat-based products. So we acquired a, a IP or patented technology, patent pending technology um, that we call it the MANA IP that converts not only wheat, but it converts um, other grains, legumes, pulses, and, and it, from what they are into very high fiber, high protein, low carbohydrate flours. Um, so we're, we focused initially on wheat. We've developed a number of wheat-based products that we're launching now. In fact, we should launch our first products by the end of the year that deliver a flour that is has 30 times more fiber, three times more protein, and between 75 and 85% less carbs than your traditional flour. And it's not genetically modified. There are no other additives. It is wheat in, wheat out. And the beauty about this technology is not only does it deliver uh, on nutrition, however, it also delivers on sustainability because the entire process that we use captures 100% of the wheat berry. Even the liquid that is a byproduct of production actually becomes a value-added product and we call it a baking enhancer. So when you take that liquid and you are proofing bread, for example, it speeds up the proofing time by multiple factors. So instead of needing three to six hours, for example, to bake a loaf of bread or rise and bake, you're, you're able to rise that bread in like 30 minutes. So you know, think about the industrial applications for that, for example. So, um, so we think that's a perfect example 
of how we're going to focus on call it the crop to food or crop to product uh, side of our business. And, and, and you can imagine that IP, it's not only good for wheat, it's good for a whole bunch of other inputs. Input. So uh, we're really excited about that side of our business as well. Absolutely. You know, Ingo, I'm sure you get this a lot. You guys have a lot going on. And I, <laughs> we just, sure do. I, yeah. I, and, and I really, the, the reason I say that is because, you know, one of, one of the things I, I really enjoy doing on this show is talking with companies like you that have a lot going on and doing our best to try and simplify it as best we can for our audience so that they can wrap their head around, okay, I see, I, I'm getting the big picture here. So one of those questions I always like to ask to help in that regard is if you had to pick one competitor out there, if there are, or maybe that's a combination of a few, who would, how would you, who would it be or who would that combination of be to say, yes, this is either who we are now that we'd like to be or who we hope to be maybe in, in the future, you know, as we continue to build out the empire. You know, I don't think there is anybody that's doing what we're doing. Um, and that's what's so exciting. Nobody has thought to really tie this together. And, you know, I hear that a lot, you know, oh, aren't, aren't you taking on too much? Well, I used to run and, and own uh, a health and beauty aids business. And, you know, everybody, oh, you're a health and beauty aids business. Yeah, okay, well, let's take that a step further. We did private play, uh, private label products. So we produced for companies like Nordstrom's and uh, Safeway. And so across, I think we had like 40, 50 SKUs, different products that we manufactured for them. Then we had our own brands, right? And then we co-branded. I mean, uh, then we delivered that through direct-to-consumer. In those days, it was television marketing, uh, shopping networks. We had multi-level. We had retail or standard distribution, if you want to call it that. And so, you know, people think, oh, it's 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 a lot, but it's not in the in in the totality of a complexity of business. If you have solid management team and you cascade your organization properly and you understand how to deploy your resources effectively, it actually isn't. Um, and so that's what excites us about this opportunity is, albeit it's broad, it is really focused on two fundamental elements. And that are, is, of course, sustainability around agricultural production and nutrition around food or plant-based products. And, uh, and it all centers around intellectual property, something that's uniquely different. And hopefully, Bob, I've kind of articulated how each of the things we're doing is unique and how it really sets us apart from anybody else. For sure. No, I, and, and you have. I was just, I was just even for my own edification in some senses, you know, especially I've been doing interviews with microcaps for many years. And sometimes, you know, you just want to like, like I, that, that's why I always ask that sentence at the beginning. Give me that one line that best describes yeah. it. Because you know that there's going to be those audience members, especially in microcaps where retail drives everything, right? Where they just want to simply understand that story in that one sense, especially, you know, especially when you're, you know, just getting started with commercialization and, you know, going down that road and whatnot, right? Well, the nice thing is, of course, from our M&A perspective, you know, Delphi is a well-established business, good, solid uh, revenue and earnings. 
Um, we have a number uh, more coming to Roos is the same. You know, that, that's uh, quite a substantive business with operations in Asia and in Africa and in Europe uh, and the U.S. Um, so, you know, uh, that company is 800 people, employees. Um, so, you know, in, and has great, tremendous management teams. So, you know, it's about working with those teams and really figuring out how we can take that knowledge experience and uniqueness and and create more value for our shareholders and really complement what those management teams are doing. Absolutely. So another question that I have for you, and I ask this to everybody on here, and you know, you've been doing some of the circuit now, you've been doing some one-on-ones and going to conferences, meeting with investors. I'm sure you have a few that you talk to quite often. You know, after they maybe have gone through the deck, seen your presentation, you want, what do investors maybe still get confused about or maybe some of the frequently asked questions that you get? Well, I think actually, Bob, you've hit on some of that. I think one maybe that we haven't talked about yet is how are you going to finance all this? Um, you know, that's... that's I was, all... That was my next one, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty common question. So... Uh, obviously, I have to be careful what I say, um, but I can say or speak to sort of general management team philosophy. And and uh, what's very important for us is that we find opportunities that are truly unique where we know a dollar in creates, you know, $10 out. Um, and, and so when we think about things like the MANA IP, um, and which is part of what we call unthink, um, uh, we see that sort of opportunity. Same with RCS, small investment in, big returns out. Um, we're not looking at, you know, uh, I call it a commoditized product or another plant-based protein that's not really any different where you have to spend tens of millions to get any sort of traction on the sales side. So um, so that's one thing. Um, on the other side, when we think about our M&A, we want to be buying companies that are already fiscally sound, have solid revenues and EBITDA, where any investment in the business we know creates even more incremental value. And when we think about buying those businesses, if we're paying a dollar, I wanna make sure that the shareholder value we create is $1.50 or $2. I don't wanna be that public company that buys for a dollar and it's worth a dollar. And there's a lot of people who do that. We refuse to do that. So we've turned, or turned down a lot of acquisitions um, as a result. And, and it's our view that if we apply that discipline, broadly speaking, across our business, then we can be, let's say, more effective in the way we finance. We'll always, at least at this stage, look to debt as much as we can. So we'll overweight on debt but we're only going to do that for a short period of time as we start to build that shareholder value and that accretion. And as we do that, we'll look to de-lever so we have a much more balanced debt to equity ratio as we go forward. So that's loosely speaking how we see it. Obviously, you, there's macro factors you can't ever control, but we, we are being very disciplined in how we look at this um, and how we, we sort of plan where our business is going. Absolutely. I have to follow up real quick on the on using debt right now, you know, with interest rates rising and whatnot. I mean, that do people 
ask you a lot about that. Like, okay, you're going to use that to do, to finance some of these activities. Like, are you sure? Like, does that come up quite often or, or, or are you kind of like, well, look, not, here's our, here's our plan for that? Well, not really. I, I have to say, you know, uh, the senior team, we've all, you know, we're all well into our fifties. We've been, been there, done that. Um, you know, we we're very mindful of the risks. Um, you know, sometimes you have to take on a little more risk than perhaps you want, but you, you got to do that knowing that you have to address it, right? I think what I've seen a lot is businesses who um, perhaps aren't savvy in the capital markets or in the financing domain really put themselves on a back foot. And if they miss or they don't perform, um, then th they're really left with little optionality around finance and they can lose control of their capital structure. And when they do that, it's lights out for everybody. So, you know, we're, we're very aware of those risks and challenges. Obviously, there's no guarantees because you can't control what's going on in the world. I mean, look at the war um, and, and look at COVID. Um, but with a little bit of foresight and awareness of risk, I think you can you can manage your way through it. For sure. And another question I ask everybody on here, one more kind of devil's advocate type question, you know, in your opinion, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks that you want folks to be aware of? Well, finance is obviously one of them. Um, so, you know, any anytime you're you're growing a business, uh, you're investing capital in growing your business, whether it's more working capital whether it's investment in specific initiatives, whether you're buying a company, um, you know, there's, there's the risk that that company doesn't uh, perform going forward, the, you know, based upon historicals. I mean, historicals are no guarantee of future performance. Uh, so that's a risk. Uh, of course, your business plan could, could be affected by macro conditions, or maybe you've got some assumptions wrong, and all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, other challenges um, so, you know, those are all things that you, you, you need to be mindful of and aware of and try to plan against and make sure you're following your KPIs and you see the warning signs well in advance of becoming a problem. Absolutely. All right. So then on the other side of that, you know, from what you can tell us, you know, what, what's your vision for the company? Where do you see it in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that'll get you there? Well, our, our vision, like I said, is to be a global leader in, in delivering next generation foods and plant products. So um, for us, you know, we, we think that we have a really nice balanced portfolio of, of call it organic business, i.e. the grow house, the MANA IP, RCS, um, et cetera. Um, M&A is, is still gonna be a very important part of our near-term business. Um, and, and so we're, we're still heavily focused on M&A. Um, the goal I set for our team was to acquire $100 million worth of um, revenue um, uh, in, in this fiscal year. Um, we may not quite get there, but we, we've certainly got the pot full to get there. If it's not this year, it's certainly into next year. And next year, it's another $100 million. So. I think if we can pull that off to be at a $200 million run rate by the end of, of next year, maybe not all closed, but certainly uh, in docket, so to speak, then we've built a nice base that gives us the opportunity to really focus on growing those businesses 
but also then really growing some of the other core assets that we talked about today. Very good. All right. So, you know, one more, one more question for you today, you know, to close this out. Um, and by the way, thank you for answering all my questions. You know, I, I, you've been, I always tell everybody, I appreciate when, when CEOs come on here where they're, you know, candid and, and also, you know, within, you know, saying what they can say. Um, so I appreciate that. So to close this out here, you know, you're a public company CEO. It's not an easy job. How's the experience been for you? Well, it's great. I mean, I've, I've had the good fortune of having been a CEO multiple times. Um, it's certainly um, not without challenge, but but that's what I enjoy. And I think we, we have a tremendous team here um, of uh, individuals. Uh, we're still a small team, but uh, I think we'll grow quite quickly now. Uh, we've been very focused on creating the right type of organization and culture. And, and not just ourselves, but also from an M&A perspective, we're very mindful of um, how we interact with our targets. I think uh, I've seen it having been a banker before in the you know in the past life, as I like to say. Um, you know, one of the, the, the things I see is a lot of private equity firms um, who are out there as our competitors looking to acquire some of these companies. You know, the problem is they're very formulaic and they have very short, short time horizons, relatively short, three to five years. Um, and uh, they're not operators. They're not business builders as such. And so therefore, you see a lot of misalignment between the target and the, and the PE firm. And, and often the value that could be created falls away because of that. So we're very mindful of creating the right relationship. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, we're not buying this company or companies to, to stand still. We're, we're buying them because we see value in them to grow them, not only within their own business, but find ways to take their expertise and uniqueness and leave them more value across our entire AgTech 2.0 platform. Very good. All right, Ingo, we're there, man. So with that, where can our where where can oh, thank God? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, with that, where can our audience go and find more information on AgriForce? I, I recommend just going to our website, um, www.agriforcegs.com, and uh, you know there's contact information if anybody wants to reach out, talk to us. Happy to answer any questions. Very good, Ingo. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update. Super. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.